And then we'll dive in. So 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, you guys probably know this passage relatively well. I'm going to read uh, 14 through 17. And you guys can read that along with me. I am not Brianna Piper, if you didn't know that. Um, but we're going to read this together this morning. 2 Timothy 3, 14. It says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys have a seat. Let's pray one more time, and we'll, we'll dive in. God, we love you so much, and thank you that you've given us your word. And I pray today, um, God, as we read your word together and just think, really think about your word today and the value of it and the, the meaning of it and the, the, the miracle that it is that we have the scriptures today. Um, God, I pray that you would just um, excite our hearts in your word. God, let us be like the psalmist of Psalm 119, that just we delight in your word. We delight in your law. We delight in your statutes. God, I pray that this would be the foundation of our lives and that we would live our lives just completely surrendered to what you say to us in your scriptures. So God, just lead us in that today and help me just to clearly communicate these things as best I can. But God, ultimately, it is, it is you who bring life change, heart change, mind change, um, and you transform. So do it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, we're starting a, a four-week series. It's called Doubt and Deconstruction. And um, we're kind of asking this question for four weeks. Is Christianity true? Does Christianity and the, the claims that we make as Christians, do they hold up uh, under really close scrutiny? Just by quick poll, raise your hand, and you're a liar if you don't raise your hand. So let me go ahead and say that. Um, if you've ever had a question or wondered something about what Christians believe and thought, maybe, I don't know why that's true, or is that true, or could I really believe that? If you've ever had any kind of question or doubt, raise your hand. Okay, about Christianity. All right, cool. Um, I think we're all probably on the same page here, and let me say this up front. That's okay, and we want to make, make it very clear here at Eastridge that it is okay. It's okay to wonder. It's okay to have doubts. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to think about things and just go, man, I don't know why that's true, or is that even true. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to really kind of look at four different things um, that a lot of people, and the reason this, this series is called Down with Deconstruction is because that word deconstruction is sort of a, a hot topic word these days um, for people who are, when, when you hear the word deconstruction, here's what that means. It, it basically means to question your faith and kind of dissect it, right? And think about all the pieces of how you became a Christian or why you became a Christian. And a lot of people are doing that nowadays. And listen, again, I think on the surface of it, that's great. That's okay to do that. We should ask questions and we should dig into things. Um, but a lot of times that deconstruction can lead to what we call deconversion. And deconversion would be when people really walk away from their faith because they come to a place where they go, you know what, I just can't reconcile some of the things that I've always believed and, and what I see in the world or what other people are telling me or what I'm learning on TikTok or whatever it is, right? There's all these voices in our, or on our world right now that are telling us things that are opposed to what Christians believe, Okay. And that's fair. So what I just want to do for a couple of weeks is just to talk about that stuff. Is that okay? Um, is it okay if we ask some questions? Is it okay if we dig into these things a little bit? Um, I hope it is. So actually next week, and next week's going to be 
awesome, and here's why. Um, Dr. Evan Posey from Luther Rice Seminary is going to be here, um, and he's going to speak next week on the problem of evil. Why does evil exist in the world, okay? If God's so good, if God's so powerful, why the heck does bad stuff happen, right? Like, that doesn't seem to make sense to me or, or to a lot of people. So he's going to come and share on that, and we're going to have a Q&A next week. So come with some questions. We're going to give you microphones and let you ask questions to a doctor, a guy a lot smarter than I am, <laughs> up here on stage. So bring that next week. We do have two services next week, back to first and second service, all right? So today, today we're just really asking the question, is the Bible true? Can I trust this book right here? Um, because a lot, again, so many folks in the world right now, and maybe you're one of them, have that question about, you know what, this, honestly, it just seems like a little bit of an archaic thing. It was written thousands of years ago by these people that I don't know and who lived on different parts of the planet and who said these kind of crazy things and made audacious claims about this God and the things that he did and the way that the world is and creation and then Jesus and resurrection, like all these, there's, there's some crazy stuff in here. Is it true? Is what this book says valid and does it hold up? under scrutiny. Um, I want to read us this uh, little verse here. This is 1 Peter 3.15. And here's why. This is kind of the heartbeat behind why we're doing this series right here. Peter says this, but in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. And he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. And so Peter, as he's talking to the first century Christians, he's already assuming people have questions. People are going to want to know why you believe what you believe and how you can actually explain that. And Peter says, look, just be ready. Be okay with people asking questions. Be okay with your own questions, but be prepared with an answer and a reason, right? So that means what? We should use our brains when we think about our faith and who Jesus is and what the Bible is and how we think about who God is and what he's done in our lives and in the world and all these things. We should be ready to talk to people about these things. And I think that might begin with talking about the scriptures because this is what we base our entire faith on, right? Everything that we know and believe about God, it comes from here, right? So if we can't trust this, what can we trust, right? And so the end of what Peter says is this. He says, but do this with gentleness and respect. Now that's the hard part, right? Um, being ready to have an answer. Like, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I can have an answer, and I'm ready to give an answer, but I don't always want to do that with gentleness and respect because I get frustrated. I don't know if you guys ever get frustrated. It happens to me sometimes. Um, I get frustrated because um, like, I believe something and maybe somebody else doesn't believe it the way I believe it or see it the way I see it. And, and I just want to debate and I want to argue. But man, Peter's just saying, listen, let's be ready to talk to people and have conversation. Okay? And let's be ready to respect and love all people regardless of where they are and what they believe and where they stand. But I think if we can do this with gentleness and respect, man, we may just win some people to the Lord by his spirit allowing us to, to do that, right? So all, here's what I want to do today. I just want to do my best for the next like 20 minutes just to kind of remove a couple obstacles from us because maybe some of you sitting in here are, are some of the ones wondering, does this book line up with actual historical truth and record? Does it make any sense? Can I believe it at face value? Can I trust what it says? Okay. I'm not going to answer every single question in the world today or any of these weeks, but what I want to do just for a little bit today is just hopefully remove a couple of obstacles uh, out of the way of some who may be wondering, does this, does this book hold up? So first thing I want to talk about, and I'm going to, I'm going to be a geek for a minute. Any geeks in the room with me? Is that okay? Okay. Let's be geeks together. We're going to be geeks for a second. So, uh, hey, clap for geeks. That's awesome. Um, 
There is a science called textual criticism. Anybody ever heard of textual criticism? Maybe not. A couple of the geeks in the room. So textual criticism is the science of piecing together ancient documents, okay? That's, that's essentially what it is. It pieces together ancient documents to basically create the best possible copies of the original text. Scientists have been doing this for hundreds of years, finding it through archaeology, through digging, through you know, finding all these documents from all over the world. And as they find bits and pieces and copies and manuscripts and all these things, they piece them together to decide, okay, like let's come up with the very best version of what we have and decide, is this text actually valid? Is what we have today the same as what we had or, or what was originally written? That's really the question. How close is the text we have today to the text that was originally written? Because that's important, right? And this is where a lot of people fall off the map with Christianity, where they go, okay, the Bible, man, it's just been so changed. It's been edited over the centuries. It's not the same book now as it was a thousand years ago or 2,000 years ago or back when Moses wrote it or whatever. It's just completely different. People have edited it over the years. So the question is, does the Bible hold up to textual criticism? That's the first thing we need to know. We just need to know, is what you have in your hands the same thing that was actually written down or has this thing been changed? So uh, let's throw up this chart. We can just kind of leave this up here for a, a, a little bit. Here are some famous ancient documents. I don't know if you guys can see this or not, but uh, maybe just put your phone on it, take a picture of it if you want to look at it later. But um, here are some famous ancient documents and, and kind of the, the statistics on them using textual criticism. So here's what scientists will do, okay? They will take a book, like look at Homer's Iliad right there, the very first one. Homer's Iliad, famous work of literature, okay? It was written about 800 B.C., all right, we know that. It was written about 800 B.C. Now, the earliest copies we have are from 400 B.C. What's the gap there? What's that gap? 400 years. Okay, now listen, by textual criticism standards, that's really, really good. Okay, if you have copies of a manuscript just 400 years apart from the original, that's actually really awesome. They like that a lot. So we got 400 years of, of a time gap, and there's 643 copies of Homer's Iliad. That's awesome as well. You have anything over like 10, and you're doing great, right? Anything over just a couple copies, and you're like, man, we're doing awesome. So there's 643 copies. Homer's Iliad, after the Bible, and we'll get to that. You can see it there at the bottom. Homer's Iliad is, as far as history goes, the, the greatest document that we have as far as textual criticism. And looking at it and going, this thing is reliable. We know that Homer's Iliad today is what Homer's Iliad was in, in 800 BC. Now you can see all these other ones. And I do want to mention um, Plato's Tetralogies, okay? P Plato's Tetralogies, I don't know how you pronounce that. Tetralogies, Tetralogies. Written 400 BC. First copies we have is from AD 900. That's about a 1,300-year gap. Um, actually, since the time that this chart was created, several more copies have been found. They're, up, they're actually up to about 200 copies of, the te of Plato's Tetralogies right there in the middle. So that's pretty good, too. 1,300 years, 200 copies, something like that. Now, if you go to university today, if you're a law student, you're going to learn Plato's Tetralogies. You're going you're to study these things. In particular, the Republic, something that Plato wrote, the Republic. You're going to learn about this. You're going to study these things as if it is exactly what Plato wrote back in 400 BC, right? Like they don't even question whether or not Plato's Tetralogies, Plato's The Republic is exactly what it was all those many years ago. And yet we have a 1300 year gap and only about, like I said, the number's up from seven, about 200 copies now today. Now all these documents on here are taken by the world at large as reliable, when they look at these, these documents, these ancient texts, they look at all these and they go, man, these things, whether it's Livy or Tacitus or whoever wrote it, man, that stuff is reliable based on the, the textual criticism that we have. Now look at the New Testament down here. This is just the New Testament. When was the New Testament written? About AD 50 to 100, first century. 
We have found, we have found, in AD 114, by that time we had found, or yeah, by, by AD 114, we had found fragments of this New Testament. By AD 200, we had entire books. By AD 250, we had most of the New Testament. And by AD 325, we had all of the New Testament. The number of copies, 5,366 copies in Greek. If you add in Latin and Aramaic translations, over 20,000 copies of the New Testament alone, right? So the gap is 50 to 225 years at worst. What was Homer's Iliad? 400 years. And Homer's Iliad is looked at as a standard. That's really good, right? Our worst gap in the New Testament is 50 to 225 years. And how many copies do we have? Over 20,000 copies of the New Testament found. All that is to say, simply by textual criticism standards, the New Testament is laughably better than any document that has ever been written in the history of the world. There's nothing that comes close. And yet, isn't it a little bit crazy that we will look at things like Plato's Tetralogies or Homer's Iliad, and we will say, now that is, that is exactly accurate. That's exactly what was originally written. Now, when we look at the New Testament, we go, eh, I'm not sure. By textual criticism standards, even non-Christian textual critics will say, no, 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 what we have in the Bible today is exactly what was written. We know that for a fact. There is 99.9% .9 accuracy, and the little bit of inaccuracies they found are basically a couple spelling errors, right? Things like that. Nothing major as far as theology, nothing major as far as history, uh, changes in the documents, anything like that. Now, um, looking at one particular document that we have today, the Quran. And I, and I mentioned the Quran because um, the Quran, from, if you were to talk to a Muslim person, they would, uh, by and large, the Muslim community um, kind of mocks the New Testament and mocks really the scriptures at large as being inaccurate and unreliable, which I think is hilarious um, because the, the Quran itself, and, I, and I'm not, listen, this is not about um, bashing Islam or anything, that's not the point. The point is what holds up and what does not, right? That's the question. That's the point. Um, the Quran, by comparison, was basically copied from memorized words of Muhammad on rocks, on palm leaves, even written on people's backs over the centuries um, as they tried to like, copy down the things that Muhammad was saying. There are no manuscripts that are well-preserved of the Quran. And in fact, I, I was doing some reading on this, and Professor uh, PhD, he's, he's deceased now, Keith Small, the guy who literally wrote the book, literally wrote the book on Quran studies, like textual criticism of the Quran and the New Testament. Um, he was a professor of this for many, many years, did lectures all over the world on the New Testament and the Quran. He said this, that the New Testament, the New Testament preserves reliable versions of the original text, while the Quran, by comparison, preserves only an early edited form at the expense of the original text. And the Quran has intentional editing and shaping at many points in its history. Okay, so the guy who did the studies on the Quran and the New Testament essentially is saying, what we see when we look at the New Testament is that we know we have the reliable versions of the original text. And when we look at the Quran, we know that it's been edited and changed over centuries and centuries of work. People that have basically taken, and really we have none of the original manuscripts because they were all destroyed by a guy named Uthman. He destroyed them all and then he wrote his own edited versions of them. So that, that's just one comparison, right? As we look at these ancient texts and think about, does the New Testament, does the Bible hold up to what it says versus any other documents in history? Is that enough geeking for y'all? Okay, little bit. So I think as we just look at that, we can go, okay, here's what we know. We know that the Bible at least is now currently what it has always been. What it has always said is what it says today. What we hold in our hands this day is the things that it originally said. And then we can look at archaeology. 
We can look at archaeology. And, um, and, and from, from Dr. Clifford Wilson, here's just some, some thoughts on archaeology. Over the centuries, the Bible has been vindicated and proven again and again and again to be reliable and to be accurate based on archaeological finds, digs all over the world that have found the things that the Bible said were really there found uh, statues and found plaques and found monuments and found altars and found temples and found all sorts of things and inscriptions about kings and wars, battles all over the world that the Bible said were there. There have been times when over the centuries people have questioned, did, did this thing really happen or did it not really happen? For instance, King Nebuchadnezzar mentioned by Daniel as having built uh, the, the walls of Babylon, right? For centuries that was questioned. People were like, well, there's no, really no record of Nebuchadnezzar having done that until the 1900s when lo and behold, it was excavated and found that Nebuchadnezzar is in fact given credit by the Babylonians as being the one who built the walls of Babylon. And Daniel said it, right? It was right here the entire time. And it took archaeologists hundreds of years to catch up to the things that the Bible was saying the entire time. There are biblical details of miraculous events, such as the creation account, global floods, uh, the parting of the Red Sea, the collapse of Jericho's walls, which is a fascinating one. Um, they, they excavated Jericho just like less than 100 years ago now, and they did find, they found these walls that were completely crumbled um, all over the place, and they actually noted it looked like the walls had not fallen um, by a flood or by an earthquake or by wind. They didn't show the, the typical like patterns of rock rubble that would be from any of those natural causes. Instead, the walls of Jericho, as they excavated, it looked like they had been smashed from above. Except one particular portion of the very north wall, which as we read the biblical record, what do we know? The entire wall was destroyed except where Rahab lived. There was one little piece, right? And that's exactly what archaeologists found when they were digging this stuff up and just going, oh, maybe there's actual reliable evidence about the things that are written in this book. Um, Dr. Wilson like I said, this is Clifford Wilson, Dr. Wilson, um, world-famous archaeologist, biblical scholar. Um, he points out how archaeology has continued to support the biblical record with discoveries from ancient civilizations such as Egypt, Mesopotamia, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greco-Roman empires all over the world. All, all, all over the world. He writes this. He says, over and over again, the Bible has been vindicated from Genesis to Revelation. The superiority of Genesis 1 through 11 has been established. The patriarchal backgrounds have been endorsed. The writings of Moses do date to his time. That was questioned for centuries, whether or not Moses could have actually written the things that he wrote in the first five books of the Bible. But over archaeological uh, studies over the centuries, they have vindicated Moses as actually having written the things that they say that, that the Bible says he wrote in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He says, David's Psalms were clearly a product of his time. The records about Solomon should no longer be written off as legendary. The Assyrian period has been given dramatic confirmation to biblical records with excavations of the backgrounds of Old Testament kings, prophets, peoples, incidents. Likewise, the New Testament documents have been consistently demonstrated as factual eyewitness records. Kings, rulers, officials are named unerringly. Titles are used casually but with remarkable accuracy. Geographic boundaries Boundaries are highlighted and customs are correctly touched upon. Um, actually, today, scholars of the New Testament, both, again, Christians and non-Christians alike, they would agree that Luke 
who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts, is one of, if not the greatest historian to ever live. The accuracy with which Luke writes about events and about people and about places where Jesus would travel and the apostles would go. Like they have used the book of Luke over the centuries to find these places and actually realize the things that he was describing. They're exactly as he described. He was so accurate and so detailed, considered again today to be one of the greatest historians that ever lived. Now, here's my question. Does all of that make this the word of God? Eh, not necessarily. It makes it really interesting, right? And it should be something, at least when you see all of that, you see all the evidence, you see what science and archaeology and biology and history and ethics and morality, like all the things that the Bible has added to the world, when you see all of that kind of compiled together and the accuracy with which it talks about it, you look at it and go, okay, well, it's a great book. But does that mean it's the word of God? Does that mean it's miraculous? Does that mean it has power and authority over my life today? Eh. But here's the thing. All of that is not all that's true about this book. Consider a couple more things with me. First of all, consider this is not one book. How many books is this? 66. If you didn't know that, write it down. This is 66 books compiled by how many authors? 40. 40-ish authors, 40 different people over a period of about 1,600 years that 40 different authors wrote over 1,600 years, 66 different books. And uh, uh, just imagine that because these authors, by and large, a lot of them did not know one another. Some of them did. Of course, they were contemporaries, but a lot of them didn't know each other. Elijah didn't know Moses, right? And, and David and Paul and John and Peter, they didn't know those guys, right? Like these, these are all different people across different eras of time. And yet they all write with extraordinary unity and consistency on matters of morality and history and ethics and theology. They all tell one great story about one great God who has a purpose and a plan in his creation and for his people. And as you read through the Old Testament, you see that all of the, the, the prophets and the poets and the, 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 the leaders of the time and the kings, like, as, as they were writing down these stories, as they were telling the history of these people, it was really all about this God and this plan that he had that would come to a fulfillment and to a fruition through some sort of new person that would come to this earth, some sort of new Messiah, some sort of kingly figure in the line of David, in the line of Adam, right? They would, they would prophesy about these things, the promises of Abraham and the laws of Moses all being fulfilled in this one person. How would it be that 40 different authors over 1,600 years could write one story? How could that possibly be true if it wasn't really one author, God, writing through these men to write down the histories and the things that he wanted them to say, the, the truth that he wanted them to convey to his people. How would it be that these people could write that, that cohesive, unified story without fail, preaching and prophesying and pointing to one central event in history? And then how could it be that one day a man would show up and would claim to be the one that all those prophets were pointing to, all those preachers in the Old Testament were talking about, that he would show up and claim to be that guy. And then there, we would have four different historical records of his life 
the things that he taught, things that he said, where he was born, what he did, the miracles that he accomplished, and the death that he died. And not only the death that he died, but maybe the linchpin of all of this, the resurrection from the dead. How could it be that that one man would show up and claim to be the one that all the Old Testament prophets pointed to, and that all of their prophecies, with extraordinary accuracy, by the way, were fulfilled, hundreds of prophecies fulfilled in this one man. Some mathematicians have actually done the work on this. They figured that for any one person to fulfill even eight, even eight Old Testament prophecies, the likelihood would be about the same as if you covered the United States in quarters about this high, blindfolded someone, and told them to go find the quarter you were thinking of. It's about the same. So like literal mathematicians did that math and figured out just to fulfill eight prophecies would be the same odds as that. Jesus fulfilled hundreds. How could it be? Hey, he didn't make himself be born where he was and it was prophesied, right? He, he completely fulfilled everything the Old Testament said. He would do both implicitly and explicitly taught in the Old Testament to point to him and the redemption of, the, of, of human beings by God's plan and God's design. And then he did. He did everything he said he was going to do. He did everything the scripture said he was going to do. And he died and he rose from the dead. And the apostle Paul points to 500 witnesses who saw him rise from the dead. And 12 of those witnesses go into the world. And then Paul himself, the 13th, go into the world to proclaim the news that Jesus, the one who was crucified in Jerusalem, and by the way, the historical records on Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection are immense in this world. There's really more accurate uh, description of Jesus's life than even George Washington in the world that we live in. Like It is so well documented who this man was. It's beyond contestation that he died on a Roman cross. Some just don't believe that he actually rose from the dead, and yet 500 witnesses say he did. The Apostle Paul actually writes this in 1 Corinthians. I just want to read this to you because um, this is, again, first century, just a few decades after what Jesus did. This is like sort of a, a, a creed that the Christians would say. This was maybe the earliest thing written in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3. It says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. That's, that's amazing, right? That there are still living witnesses to the facts and the claims that the apostles were making, Right? Like, this, is, this is absolutely extraordinary that these people were going around the ancient world proclaiming that a man had died who everybody saw die and then rise from the dead. He said, some of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So the apostle Paul is just saying, we are eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. The claims that this book makes Guys, they're not just myths and legends written down and copied over centuries and hundreds of years from people who just heard about these things. They're eyewitness accounts of what really happened and when they really happened and where they really happened. Consider this. If this story had been made up, and let's just talk about the resurrection of Jesus because I think that's, again, kind of the linchpin of all of this. If that really happened, I think it's all worth considering, right? If a guy really came back from the dead, that's something to, to think about. If they were making it up, would they have given the, the description of the place where he was buried? I don't think so. 
But they did. And guess what? You can go look. That's the point. Because Luke and Matthew and John, like they wanted to be accurate and they wanted to tell you, go look. That's where he was. Because we ain't lying. And they went to their death, by the way, for this truth. To the man, died for the truth. That he not only died, but he came back to life. And if that's true, according to the scriptures, and Jesus said he was the one who all the scriptures pointed to, I think that this whole book is worth considering as accurate and reliable truth. Not just history, not just fact, but truth. Because when it comes down to it, y'all, it's the truth of this that changes everything. Facts are facts. Facts are facts. Facts say, Peter, you can't step out of a boat and walk on water. But truth says, come on, Peter. All right, you get what I'm saying? Like there's truth and that's different. And Jesus showed up and said, it's me. And then everything that the Bible says and everything that the authors talk about in this, man, it's true. Because it really happened. Eyewitness accounts verified by other eyewitnesses. And it holds up. For hundreds of years, it's held up. And man, if you just study some of these things, and I have notes, by the way, if you want to come up and ask me some questions or see some of the notes that I have about just places you can go and look on some of these things, I'd love to share that, uh, share that with you. But a couple thoughts, just as we, as we wrap up here. A couple thoughts. Because um, all that, again, that's great information, hopefully, and that, that helps you some as you think about, should I, should I trust what this book says? I think if you don't right now, here's what I would say. It's at least worth considering, right? It's at least worth going, ah, maybe there's something here that might have something good to say to me. And so I would just encourage you this. One, just start reading it. Start reading it and start somewhere. I would encourage you maybe Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, read, read one of the gospels. Read about Jesus and his life, okay? Um, and, and really get into it. Get yourself a good Bible, okay? Get yourself a good, uh, reliable Bible translation. We don't even have time to get into all that with Bible translation. I know that can be kind of a messy thing, but um, I will say the, the, the good Bible translations we have today, and we have a lot of great ones, um, are, are, have been over the years, over the centuries, um, like studied and put together by scholars and people who wanted to be as reliable as they could to the text to translate those things into English. Today, um, the really good kind of literal English translations that we have, the ESV, the NASB, the King James, and the RSV. Those are four really good translations. I'll say those again. Those are, those are word for word, literal translations. ESV, NASB, King James, RSV. Those are great translations. Then we have some kind of phrase for phrase translations like the NIV, the NLT. Those are under your chairs right now, the NLT. Um, and the CSB. Those are kind of functional and dynamic translations. They'll go, instead of word for word, they'll go a little bit more phrase for phrase, okay? But they're still trying to be as accurate as they can be to the original things. Um, get help. Listen, if you need help when reading the Bible, get, there, there is plenty of help to be found. I would love to help any of you that I can. I know we have other pastors and those here on staff that would love to help you or just friends that you have and discipleship uh, people and mentors and growth group leaders. Ask for help. Don't just assume that because you didn't go to Bible college that you can't read this. I, I guarantee you, if you open it up and start reading, you might find it's a lot easier to read than you thought it was. There's, there's some hard parts for sure, but man, most of this, 90% of this, it's pretty simple, and it's pretty straightforward. And then on the parts you need help with, just ask for help and, and study and look into these things. Like I said, you can get a great Bible with study tools, study guides, um, all sorts of things like that. Get you one of those. Um, read it plainly and go from there. And the last thing I'll say is this. If there seem to be contradictions as you're reading and things that don't really make sense and things that as you read it, you're kind of going, well, this kind of doesn't line up with something else that maybe I thought that it meant or what it said or whatever. Here's what I do with that kind of thing. 
Because I've seen the, the reliability of it, and I've seen not only is it all reliable based on history and archaeology and all that, but listen, it's changed my life. It's changed the way I think, changed the way I feel, changed the way I treat people. And because of that, when I see things in here that sometimes I, I get confused about, I don't instantly go to, oh, because I'm confused or I see something that appears to be a contradiction that I think this is wrong. My first assumption is I'm wrong. That's my first assumption. I, I just don't understand something right now. I'm missing something. I'm unclear on something. And so that's what I, I just want to, I just want to give God, if I can, the benefit of the doubt that maybe he knows a little bit better than me. Isaiah 55, his ways and his thoughts are higher than mine, right? And maybe he's gotten a little bit wiser than I am, maybe a lot. And so I just start with the assumption that I don't know it all. And I want to dig into this. And I want to study this. And I want to learn about this. And I promise you this, best decision I ever made was to read this every day in my faith. The best decision ever made, it will be the best decision you ever make in your faith is to be in God's word and read it daily. Y'all, this is a miracle. This book is a miracle, literally a miracle. There are stories of Christian martyrs throughout the centuries who um, gave themselves up to death because they would not give over the one copy of the Bible that was in their town to be burned. They wouldn't do it. They're like, kill me. You ain't having this because we need this. You don't need me. All right, and guys, this is a miracle. So that's, uh, that's my time, and I just wanted to, uh, man, hopefully remove some, some obstacles from us this morning. I'm going to hang out right here. If you have questions, and I'm sure some of you do just want to talk about some of these things, please do that. Be here next week uh, for Dr. Evan Posey and bring your questions with you, all right? So we're going to talk about that. Let's pray together, and then we can be done. God, we love you, and thank you for your word. Thank you that it's good, it's true, it's reliable, and I pray that you would just lead us to love it and trust what you say to us and lead us, God, to live it out in obedience and in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Love you guys. Y'all have a great, great Sunday.